0: Today is the first day of our autumn seven-day sesheen It's the 15th of May, 2016 And we're going to continue in this session, um Drawing on stories from uh, a collection called The Hidden Lamp Stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened Women By uh, Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon Edited by them and this is um, um, a collection of um, really sort of long lost stories All the stories about women masters which, were, which didn't get into the, the canon, so to speak um, And it covers, as it says, 25 centuries So from the time of the Buddha to the present and the story that we're taking up today is um, called Shotaku's Paper Sword. Here's the story. Um, Shotaku was the third abbess of the Tokaji convent. One evening she was returning to Tokaji from a nearby monastery when a man armed with a sword accosted her and threatened to rape her. She took out a piece of paper, thrust it like a sword into the man's eyes. He was completely overcome by her spiritual strength and was unable to strike her. He turned to run, and she gave him a Zen shout, hitting him and knocking him down with her sword—in other words, her rolled-up piece of paper. He fled. And just a little bit before we go into our story, a little bit about um, Shotaku and about Tokeiji, the um, monastery where she was the abbess. First, about the monastery. Um, Keiji was a, um, a rins- or still is a, a rinzai uh, complex of uh, temples um, in Kamakura in japan um, and for many centuries it was um, a convent no longer is um but for for a long time, it was a, a major, uh, large uh, place for uh, for women to um, practice, and a sister temple to Engakuji, which was just across a valley from uh, Tokeji. It was founded by uh, the Bakuni Kakuzan Shido in 1285. So. About about thirty five years after the death of Dōgen. and uh, Tokyo became a, a refuge for women. In Japanese law, uh, women were not allowed to divorce their husbands, though men could um, divorce their wives. Um, and so, women in in abusive relationships um, had very few options. But Tokaji became one. Um, it, it became a practice that if you could get yourself into Tokaji and spend three years there as a nun, then you were, were able to um, have a, a kind of legal divorce and to be and to emerge to take up one's, your life afresh. And um, for uh, for about 600 years, um, except for certain very special ceremonies, um, there was a whole part, inner part of Tokaji, in, um, into which men were not allowed to enter, uh, which created this sanctuary for for women um, who needed to protection from um, from violent uh, husbands. And others The abbesses of this temple Were often um, Highborn uh, Daughters of of, um, Aristocrats or even uh, On occasion the emperor And uh, no doubt This this, um, um, Association The family associations Of these women uh, Would have helped To uh, protect tokeiji, which is also known as um, uh, kakekomidera, which means the, the run into convent. And probably on many occasions, uh, women were actually, would actually have uh, run into um, the protective cloisters of tokeiji. Tokaji is also famous for developing a new, a unique form of Zen practice, which uh, is known as mirror Zen. And uh, in this in this uh, practice, um, a, a woman would sit in zazen in front of a large mirror, and um, she would um, question she would look, look at this image uh, look at it intently and ask where is a single feeling a single thought in the mirror image into which I gaze where is a single feeling a single thought in the mirror image into which I gaze and, um, various commentators have suggested that this this um, mirror gazing practice was uh, particularly suited to women who were living in a society in which um, they would be judged by their appearance and and so would be um very attached to how they looked, whether negatively or positively. So attached to their beauty or perhaps uh, feeling a lot of loathing if they were not coming up to how beautiful they would like to be. And of course, in that time, beauty would have seemed to be a large determiner of one's fate what kind of marriage one would make um, family alliances and of course still today women are very very often judged on physical appearance And there's enormous pressure in, in uh, our culture now in terms of the um, sexualization of girls. Where they, they're exposed to images which um, sort of tacitly teach them that, that how you look is the most important thing. So imagine imagine an antidote to that. To, to look at one's image in a mirror. And really what is this practice about? It's about learning to see that what you're looking at is in fact an image it hasn't got the same the depth that reality has actually we can't directly see ourselves It's impossible. There's a saying. There's a saying in, in Zen: the eye cannot see itself. In the story of um, the sixth ancestor, Hui um image uh, of a mirror is uh, a very important. Element in the story Nung was a was from the south and um, a layman when he came to his teacher's temple and uh, many of you know the story of the of the um, the fifth ancestor. Um, Sort of setting up uh, a competition, inviting his his um, monks to write a verse to express their understanding of the truth. And the head monk writes a verse, and then Hui Nung responds. When he hears, as an illiterate person, he has to get somebody to read it to him. Uh, but then he responds with another verse. The original verse of the head monk. Is, the body is the Bodhi tree The mind is like a mirror bright Take heed and keep it always clean And don't let the dust alight And when Huainang heard this He wrote another verse There is no Bodhi tree Nor stand of mirror bright From the first there is not a single thing So where can dust alight? Kakuzan, the the founder of tokeiji added her own verse to these two Um, she wrote since not a thing takes lodging in the mind it is untated to speak of polishing is itself illusion since not a thing takes lodging in the mind It is untainted. To speak of polishing is itself illusion. If we look closely, we can begin to see how nothing lodges in the mind. If we examine it closely, it changes from moment to moment. In the Diamond Sutra it says... um, Past mind is ungraspable, future mind is ungraspable. present mind is ungraspable. We called on in our, in our practice to see beyond appearances. Women who came into this temple, um, no doubt, many of them had very painful pasts, which they may have seen as as um, pretty hopeless and certainly oppressive. They may have taken on the judgments of the the, the wider society, which would. Um, label them as as fallen women or uh, damaged goods, and really, given the, the narrowness of options for women, um, to fail as a wife would would be seen as as pretty much pretty close to failing as a human being, and so it would be an urgent thing for these women to to. Uh, Find a way to to get beyond their the self images, their own internalization of the ones from society and and perhaps imposed on them by their families and um, upbringing. And this mirror practice would could help them to. See what remains undefiled, untainted, as Kakuzaan says. To see that the notion that we have to polish our mind is in itself an illusion. Not a matter of getting rid of the dust. Rather, we can, if we're you know, attentive, see through the dust. Recognize what gets in the way as insubstantial. We don't have uh, much information about Shotaku, this third abbess who features in our story, um, her lay name was Sawa. And um, it's said that she um, trained her ki as a child from a very early age. And this ki uh, is this um, Japanese pronunciation of qi that appears in qigong and tai chi one's, one's um, energy or, or life force it says in, in the accounts that she, she cha- trained her qi through breath and body practices and, and was an adept at gathering her energy in the tanden in this, uh, this vital center of the, of the body below the navel so whether she w- probably she practiced some kind of martial art, and and she um, as as a daughter of a samurai family, maybe this was something that was open to her. She married um, uh, a, a retainer of a of the Hojo family, um, so somebody a samurai of, of high status, but he was killed, um, and. Many w- were killed with him because it was a time, so this was in 1331, it was a time of, of war and, and great unrest and danger. And and on her husband's death, Sawa uh, shaved her head and entered Tokeji, and she stayed. Her dharma name was Shotaku, and for many years she practiced under master master, uh, Darsen, who was the uh, abbot of neighboring uh, monastery in Kakuji Now just returning to our story one one night when she was Um, uh, returning to um, Tokaji most likely this was her returning from um, Doksan with her teacher to get from Nkakuji to Tokaji it was necessary to go down a steep hill across a small ravine and up the other side. And so we can imagine her making this walk very late one night. A dark, perhaps moonless night. And in her sleeve, she's carrying a scroll. A rolled up piece of paper with a verse written on it from her teacher. Which is going to become her her. Um meditation topic and as she's as she's down in the in the this valley suddenly a man steps out of the shadows and accosts her, threatening her with a sword and and basically telling her to get down so he can take his pleasure with her. And she, at this affront, she brandishes this rolled up piece of paper. She pulls it out of his see- sleeve. Whacks him on the nose. And he's completely flabbergasted. Here he is with a sword of steel in his hand and she she meets him with a piece of paper then she lets out a great shout ha ah! and he's thrown completely off balance and flees leaving his sword on the ground In this um, collection, each of the stories that is uh, presented um, has a little uh, reflection by a, a, a uh, contemporary Buddhist teacher. And the, the, um, the teacher who gives a reflection on this one is called Nancy Mujo Baker. And um, she tells a story here Um, Of Another example of Of uh, courage Fearlessness She writes This story reminds me of a news item That came out of Somalia last year About a remarkable woman doctor Dr. Hawa Abdi Who runs a small hospital that she built on her own land It's the only hospital for miles around One day she heard gunshots A group of warlords had surrounded the hospital with guns drawn They belonged to one of Somalia's most fearsome militant groups, notorious for chopping off hands and stoning adulterers. Why are you running this hospital? They demanded. You're old and you're a woman. She was held at gunpoint while the hospital was ransacked and severely damaged by the warlord's underlings. She was then put under house arrest for five days while the hospital was shut down. In that time, two dozen malnourished children from the hospital died. But then something extraordinary happened. Hundreds of women from the sprawling refugee camp on Dr. Abdi's property dared to protest, adding to a flood of condemnation from Somalis abroad that forced the gunmen to back down. Because of so much publicity about their misdeeds, they agreed to open the hospital again. But Dr. Abdi refused until the warlords apologised in writing. They did, in both English and Somali. Their document in their document they apologized to dr. Abdi to the NGOs helping in the camp to the camp staff and to the Somali people around the area who had lost loved ones and this Nancy Mujoro Boca says so is a beautiful example of uh, spiritual spiritual strength in our in our story from the um, in the 1300s, um, Shotaku's um, key, for energy just comes forth. We can, we can think that this is something special, but it really isn't. Each of us has this power if we can um, touch it then it it will come forth when needed the second story of Dr. Abdi um, really brings brings this this kind of strength down to, to earth I guess it also always I always ask myself when I read stories of this kind of courage. Would I have the courage to do this if I were in that situation? And I think the most honest answer to that is I just don't know, because this isn't something you can uh, really predict. All we can really do is is Train ourselves To be as present as possible Because that's where this kind of response comes from The Shotaku's um, Parrying with her paper sword is Comes from a place that is is prior to our thinking, deeper than, than thinking. Often, when when um, people um, do heroic things like rescuing somebody from a, uh, a, r- a river or um, uh, getting somebody out of a burning vehicle afterwards they get asked well were, were you frightened and often they'll say i didn't have time to be fri- frightened they just responded the thinking mind that might have made them uh, fearful didn't Engaged, something else engaged first. Nancy Baker adds, We all have the strength. It's the same strength we use whenever we commit ourselves to something completely. An example would be skiing downhill with one's whole body and mind, 100%. It is, on many ski slopes, the only way to avoid breaking a leg. If I ever have to have brain surgery, I hope that my surgeon could be 100% in this way. It is hard for us to do something, anything 100%, especially when it involves others. We are usually worried about making a mistake. Do we look right? Will we be approved of? Will we offend someone? And in this koan and the story from Somalia, we might also be worried about whether we would be killed. We are completely tied to others for reference points to assure us that we are solid, separate and permanent. We resist doing anything 100% because it, it involves giving up those reference points and thus our self, something we are very reluctant to do. Actually, it's not even giving up our self. It's giving up our self-image. The idea we have in our minds about who we are. is a piece of research in... in comes out of the U.S., about what people are most afraid of. And the the second thing on the list um, that people say they're afraid of is death. The first one on the list is speaking in public. Sooner or later, in practice, if we're, if we're putting energy into it, we're going to come up against fear some point. Going to Doxan is a great generator of fear and anxiety the prospect of going to Doksan, usually not so much the actual going. But it's, it's another th- thing, like speaking in public, where um, we dread making a fool of ourselves, saying the wrong thing, appearing perhaps less enlightened than we're, like to look, or it can be fear of fear of rejection, fear of being laughed at or disapproved of, probably the ground ground fear which these two speaking in public, and dying both share, is the fear of of stepping into what we don't know. Into the void. Stepping beyond the safety of the familiar, even if that familiar is uncomfortable, or a place where we suffer, which we often do when we have have a very strong negative self-image. But at least it's familiar. It's the known. And so we cling to that image. At the end of each of these stories and and the reflection, the editors add some questions. And the ones that they have here are Um, A Zen teacher once said that even if you weren't a Bodhisattva yet you could pretend to be one. What is the significance of imagination on the spiritual path? Can you overcome fear by pretending to be brave? These are good questions to ask. I I actually don't think that Shotaku was pretending. It was something very um, authentic in her response. She was just coming forth with her energy. But she certainly wasn't anticipating what you would think would be the outcome from being threatened by a man with a sword on a dark, lonely path. And because she didn't have any idea in her mind about how things would turn out, they turned out quite differently from what you would expect. But going back to that question, can you pretend to be a Bodhisattva, then the answer is yes. Do our best to pretend. And one if we keep pretending, then through through force of repetition we'll bit by bit become more bodhisattva like. One, one psychologist says, if you can't make it, fake it. This is, um, we could distinguish between um, courage and fearlessness, that, that courage, is, say, say, is res- acting in spite of being afraid, overcoming our fear. Whereas fearlessness would be to really, to really transcend our fear. For it to um, arise in a way that really doesn't shake us, may still be there to some degree. But it's no longer the um, it's no longer in the driver's seat. read a little bit from um, uh, an issue of Mountain Record this is the um, Zen Mountain Monastery journal um, in which they um, which a uh, commentary on, a, on a, um, a case called the Stone Lion by um, the late John Dairalure is, is, um, is given. And can't look at the whole thing, but um, the, these, this is from Koans of the Way of Reality, which is a, a collection that Dairoshi himself put together, and, and each one wrote a, a prologue and a verse. And, and I'd like to read a little bit from his commentary on the prologue. Um, And the prologue goes like this. Uh, Confined in a cage, up against a wall, pressed against barriers. If you linger in thought, holding back your potential, you will remain mired in fear and frozen in inaction. If, on the other hand, you advance fearlessly and without hesitation, you manifest your power as a competent adept of the way passing through entanglements and barriers, without hindrance, the time and season of great peace is attained. How do you advance fearlessly and without hesitation? That's the, that's the million-dollar question, and the question really that no one can answer for us. We have to answer it for ourselves. But he, here's what he says. Fear is one of the central themes we work of, work with in our practice When we examine fear, we find it is almost always based in the past In something we have carried around for many years It is part of the baggage we call our self Through the processes us in, through studying the self That baggage becomes quite evident and accessible Then he quotes the first part of the prologue I just read. Confined in a cage, up against the wall, pressed against barriers, if you linger in thought, holding back your potential, you will remain mired in fear and frozen in action. The little lady says, although each of us has the potential of Buddhahood, as soon as we start analysing, we give rise not to freedom, but to more things to analyse, more things to understand. As the inaction continues, the fear persists. We come up with all kinds of wonderful explanations for our fear, but somehow they don't seem to help. We define it, categorise it, analyse it, judge it, understand it. Still, it persists. What is this fear? And he gives a dictionary definition. An agitation or dismay in anticipation of danger or harm. Anticipation. He says fear is always has to do with what is going to happen next. It is always about the next corner, next day, next hour, next moment. It's, it's a kind of a what if where we throw up in front of us um, some image of what might happen and we could relate this back to the question that, that the editors of The Hidden Lamp ask: what role does imagination play in our lives in our practice What if we see that that what we throw up before us is an image? When we can do that, then the dust that's obscuring our minds becomes no dust. If, on the other hand, you advance fearlessly and without hesitation, you manifest your power as a competent competent adept of the way. What is this power? Power is key. Key is uncovered in the process of Zazen. Just the simple action of acknowledging a thought and letting it go and bringing your attention back to the breath builds power. Little by little, day by day, the practice of sitting, of watching the flow of thoughts without analysing, judging or understanding them, builds confidence almost imperceptibly. Passing through entanglements and barriers without hindrance, the time and season of great peace is attained. The season of great peace is what we call the endless spring, The endless spring is always present, just as spring is always present. In the frozen branches buried beneath three feet of snow, spring is present. Buried deep beneath years of the conditioning lives the Buddha. But unless we realize and activate that potential, it remains dormant and doesn't impart any strength to our lives or to anyone else. Our our practice really is just to have faith in that Buried Buddha. And to keep excavating. To keep working at uncovering it. She goes on to point out that um, Sometimes being fearless is stupid There are good reasons to um, be afraid We would do well to be more afraid of, of, of what we humans are doing uh, to our biosphere to, to not be afraid about that was to um, be in denial to think that we're somehow invulnerable He says, there is also the fear, fearlessness of the young who still see themselves as invulnerable. That sense of invulnerability and willingness to take chances is what the military loves about young people. They take that, that young energy and, uh, and use it for their own purposes. On the other hand, the kind of fearlessness I'm speaking of is a generous, compassionate fearlessness. It is not a matter of just exerting one's power. I'm speaking of spiritual fearlessness, one of the attributes of a spiritual warrior. To see this kind of fearlessness throughout history, manifested by all of the great teachers, Moses, Jesus, St. Teresa, Buddha, Bodhidharma, because their fearlessness was once, was not self-centered, it was compassionate. That is why I stress repeatedly to be generous with your practice and with your Zazen. Don't just practice for yourself, but for all sentient beings. Give your Zazen to someone who needs it. It makes a huge difference when we practice in that spirit. To practice Zazen generously, to offer to offer it up it can help shift us from obsession with what we have and haven't attained and move to um, a spirit of generosity of giving it's, it's a profoundly liberating shift it's one that that even as we open more to people's suffering, we find there's also more joy, more energy, more resilience, and more fearlessness. Fearlessness like like a mother has when Her child is is in danger. One of the first encouragement talks I ever heard, and first probably the first session I went to in Rochester, was the story of um, a mother who was in a car accident, and her child was pinned under the vehicle. She was thrown off, out of the vehicle, but her child was pinned underneath it. And she managed to lift the car enough so that somebody could pull her child out, something that would have been totally impossible for her to do normally. But somehow she managed to summon that energy, that, that key by putting herself 100% into that effort. Everything really comes down to making this 100% effort. And it's not like we can go to what we we think 100% effort should be like but rather we just make the the best effort we can in any given moment, even if it sounds or feels paltry, inadequate. Well, That's okay. It's the best we could do in this moment. And right then, uh, right after, we get another moment. and then another one and then another one Dada also talks about how if we if we can acknowledge our fear if we can really face it then we can also get a greater sense of empowerment because, because it's our running from our fear which is really the problem not so much the fear itself and if we go through it enough times that we'll experience being in fear but then coming through Things not turning out as we had thought, perhaps, or our managing to um, uh, endure a difficulty. He gives the example of of canoeing, where you've turned up uh, upside down a few times in your canoe, but you you make it down the the river that you are going down in your in your kayak, say. In other words, you get to under, know that you can actually be okay. You can come through the other side. Really, this is, is, is learning to fall down. Learning that you can feel full of anxiety before you go to doksan. And go to and have your dog on and maybe you say something that you wish you hadn't said but you come out the other side it's okay he says one of the first things taught in martial arts is not how to fight but how to lose how to fall down and get up falling down and getting up are not two separate things they are one thing The force of falling down, of failure, is part and parcel of the force of returning to one's feet, of recovery. This is actually um, a very concrete thing in Aikido, where you use the energy that your um, uh, opponent uh, gives you with their move to move through the falling down and come up again. We go through life fearing death, and we go through life fearing life. There we are, caught between two iron mountains. We're afraid we're going to die, or we're afraid we're going to live. We wonder how to deal with all the difficulties of life, creating fear of failure, as well as fear of success. It's amazing. I, see, I hear it all the time from people who are stuck on the edge of seeing the koan mu. They become gripped by this fear, They're afraid of seeing Mu, and yet they don't want to fail. They want to do it, and they don't want to do it. If they do it, they feel it may change them in some way that they don't like. I've heard people say that they're afraid that they may suddenly become a monastic and lose whatever possessions they have, yet at the same time they really want to see it, so they sit, frozen in fear. Usually at the bottom of fear is a sense of inadequacy, a lack of confidence. It is like the victim syndrome. We keep waiting for something to happen. How do we deal with it? Ordinary, we do one of two things. We may panic, becoming overwhelmed and eventually closing down, pulling back in one way or another. Or sometimes closing down becomes a matter of numbing ourselves using entertainment, getting stoned, getting drunk, changing the subject, or distracting ourselves when we're sitting, daydreaming. These are all different forms of denial. Or we take the opposite stand and turn the fear into anger, become a raging bull and confronting it, horns lowered, head on. But somehow the fear doesn't go away, though it seems to have retreated for the moment. Um, sometimes people will say, well, we're hardwired for fear. And yes, we could certainly agree that we're wired. We are wired for fear. It's, it's in our makeup, in our evolutionary um, conditioning. But we could argue with that word hardwired. In a a very real sense we we living beings are not hardwired for anything. You could say we're softwired. One uh, science fiction writer uh, who writes about um, interactions between artificial intelligence and and human beings way, way, way in the future. Um, these, these These artificial intelligence beings Refer to humans as wetware. So we're in a, we're in a very real, real way all wetware. It's fluid, our minds. It's shifting, changing. Energy. It's not hard. It's dynamic. Can't be pulled and pinned down. It can't be grasped. What is it, this mind of ours? We see through all the images we create, the narratives we hold to. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.